0: winter.
1: Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 43rd episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Mayuna, Alva, and Gomatra. It's also the first episode of 2020. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. In this episode I talk with Ian Morrison of Penmore. We met over here at my house on a very windy day and at certain points, you can hear the wind roaring away in the background. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. We talk about growing up in Penmore, going to school at Mornish, where his mum was the teacher. We talk about his parents, and a little about his grandparents. At one point, Ian talks about the evictions. These, of course, are the clearances. References are made to Dykes and agonists, Marquis Dan, and many more famous local characters. As a young man, Ian was in the Merchant Navy and we talk quite a bit about his travels and life at sea at one point we talk about the mortality of illegitimate children in the past which was a real eye opener for me and quite shocking so it's just a wee heads up for you that at one point we go into that at a certain moment there are quite a few terms here that i also found i needed to get a bit more definition on such as marine uh, such as merchant navy terms such as a butterworth watch and a rum line so do check out the website what we do in the winter dot com for these and other links. We speak in Gaelic at one point in this episode, and the translation of this is Are you off out Viking again? Och, you're always at that Viking, so you are. And My bum hurts. We have a few naughty words in about the episode too, but nothing too rude. Buttocks. I'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more blathers. Now, it's an absolute honour to be able to pass you over to Ian Morrison of Penmore.
2: Who are you? I'm Ian Morrison, and I was born in the house that I live in just now. <laughs> where is that? House? 72 years ago at Penmore Mill. Gosh. And uh, yeah, a lot of people find that uh, quite peculiar or unusual. They don't say peculiar, but. Uh, I find it unusual because folk, what, they move around on average five or six or seven times in their lifetime nowadays, you know? So the mill, it's obviously uh,
1: uh- a mill in the past. Can you just I would, just speak to Charlie Hogg there? And that was one mm-hmm. of the things he said was he'd like to know about um the the fact what kind of mill was it and how did that work? He said uh-huh. it's an overshot mill. What what's that?
2: No, it wasn't, it was an undershot mill. It
1: was an undershot an mill.
2: Undershot. And you can still see the laid, you know, the big stones, the big wall as you face the mill from the With road chases. on the left hand side, and that was the race down there, and then it landed You've got a sheep trying to come into your house. <laughs> uh,
1: Bug it off! Away oh, you go! Go on! Bug it off! I
2: didn't realise that you were saving on the on the lawnmower expenses. <laughs> 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 That's why you no, sheep <laughs> Exactly. I met him on the road just uh, right, yeah. uh, You leave the gate, the gate open one time. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, it'll save you a lot of grass cutting. Um, no, the, the mill, it was a meal mill. Uh-huh. And I think in the mid-19th century, there were government grants. You'll find there's a mill everywhere. There's a wee stream yeah. all the way around the island. And all the landowners took advantage of the grants to build these mills. So, as to the best of my knowledge, it was still working up until the turn of last century from the 19 uh, dot about there. But uh, it was... Uh, they, they brought in ships, well wee boats from Colin Tyree with grain to be milled, so that was quite an important one, it was a fairly mm. sizable one. Mm. Now I still have the bits, we we had the, the wheel was there, the frame, the cast iron frames were there until I took them away when we altered the mill and everything uh, about 20 odd years ago. I still have the bits there as a patent if we needed to. Fine. Rebuild it again, which mm. has always been an, an ocean we had if we, we fell into the lottery or something, because it would cost an absolute fortune. The wheel was 14 feet diameter, oh, it's a big wheel uh, and about 18 inches wide and slotted Gosh. for all the, the buckets. But it was definitely undershot, there wouldn't be enough force um, to overshoot there. So it's simply the weight of the water and the inside buckets turning it over. But the power, when you work out the physics of it, once all these buckets are a third of them are full on one side, the power of that wheel turning was was pretty tremendous. And you see the size of the stones one outside the mill there. So you can tell that it was and they used the power of the wheel to lift these stones as well, because they wouldn't be they had a levering system to lift the stone up and down so you could put the grain in and then drop it down. um, and Clearly, the weight of these stones, I guess you're talking several hundred weights anyway. Yeah. yeah, A lot of these stones were made in France, would you believe, and were brought over here. Yeah, so, there's not that yeah, all. Yeah. Um, Interesting that, well, also there's a place we pass it when we go down to Balvicar on the right-hand side. Bal, the name like Bal Nahab, it's not that. Down on the right there. Don't know if you know the road down to Seal Island. Yeah. Do you know the bit where they had to widen it? They were always getting rock falls, and they had to widen out. Well, mm-hmm. just down on the right there, there's a farm, and they used to mill stones there. They used to uh, quarry stones there as well.
1: One of the things I uh, remember when Coast, the TV program, started off years ago, mm-hmm. they showed how local people uh, probably earlier would have would have made millstones, uh-huh. and it involved, I think, it was willow, uh-huh. and you you you. Somehow get holes into um, uh, the shore and onto hard rock on the shore, and you'd put in willow plugs, uh-huh. and they would expand and slowly prise right. these these stones pop out oh, like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I've I've always thought that there's walking at Ardmore, looking down on the shore there. There's uh-huh. there's a sort of circular shape, and I've always wondered if that was one of those things. But yeah, yeah. I'll see if I can find the video and put a link into it.
2: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see that. Yeah. But but there was a. The science of rocks. I mean, these days you call it geology, right. but the science of small rocks was. You've heard about Dolechen, who lived across the river there. Yes. Now he worked as a labourer on working on after he came back from the war and on the road squads and yeah. various uh, contractors and people like that, where they didn't have these big pecker machines like they've got nowadays, and they broke rocks by hand. And I can remember us doing something, trying to fill in a holes or something on the croft and Dolechen being there and I'm trying to break this rock and he said no no You went to turn it that way and you see the seam there and you take the hammer over that seam and sure enough he knew exactly where to hit that rock to break it and also where it would be smooth so you could get a shaped side as well it's, all that stuff oh, is lost, of course, nowadays. Yeah. Oh,
1: the, there, are, there are some people that work with, with it still I'm sure that there will be. Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. Aye. But, be sculptors, sculptors. Um, but the have. practical
1: day to day knowledge ah. of that is. Ah. I mean, so um, so we got the, the mill and a uh, historic. Was it in the, the Morrison family historically?
2: No, no. In fact, uh, we're back to Maclean's again. I believe some of Alistair's relatives were in there at, at okay. one point. Um, also I think after as I said it was the turn of the century I believe when it stopped working I believe one family and I'm not sure whether it was the McLean's, were actually undertakers and I remember as a child there was a big bench there which was definitely a joiner or carpenter's bench and thinking back on it it was probably just about your six by two so it's <laughs> probably just about the right size to build your Coffins on the top, you know. Gosh, so very were, fine dining table. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I right, will. Depends whether you're into cannibalism or not. But, uh. <laughs> I'm actually
1: just reading the John Ray book at the moment. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, enough yeah, of that. Exactly. Um, yeah. We've talked in the past ourselves about the uh, clan and um, the 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 Morrison's being from from elsewhere on the island. What what was what are the roots on the island of the Morrison clan?
2: Uh, well, we believe now uh, this was probably explained to us by a Canadian woman who came <laughs> to trace her ancestry. Her ancestry was from MacDougall's and Morrison's right. on Mull. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and she came to talk to Colin and I about this, but actually, she knew more about her ancestry than we knew ourselves. That's amazing. And she, um, but one of the things she came up with, and we've we've found this on other sources as well. First of all. Uh, I'll go back a wee bit further. There was a a guy called Dol Lacamo, Donald McLean, who used to run the garage in Tubermoray. Yes. And he's very much into the history, Uh, Dol Lacamo, because obviously... That's his
1: archive there of audio recordings.
2: Oh, (laughs) I thought you were going to say that's his wig. That's his Uh, (laughs) duster. Yeah, exactly. uh, And he um, was one of the first... And there was also a wee guy called Callum MacDonald, who was a television repairman in Tubermoray, was also very much into the history. Well, and, of course, there was people like you, you would know about, Attie McKechnie and Yeah, that? he was awesome. But anyway, I'm not sure exactly where we heard of this first, but we were, oh, Wurigison, so we came across from Ireland uh, in the 17th century, I believe, possibly well. back to 1670s. But then this Canadian lady told us, I think she was the one who sort of confirmed that there was a lord of all that he surveyed over in Ireland, um, a, a big landlord of some sort anyway, uh, who had as his right-hand man, I uh, know, an Boorigison, and they also in that time owned lands on the west of Scotland as well. And he gave this guy, for presumably for services rendered or loyalty or whatever, some land on Mull. And allegedly, from this lady's researching, that land that they got was Penmore Estate.
1: I well believe that. The book there, The Companion to Gaelic Scotland, um, references that. It, if you look at, there's a section on it talks about the Morrisons of Penmore. Right. Um, and I'll show you that later yeah. on. Uh, I, well, I well believe that.
2: The, the most famous Morrison that I know, and uh, there was always this confusion, of course, or if it was a confusion, but probably just a misspelling of ones with one R and the Morrisons with two R's. Yes. Um, and the most famous one that I know about, or I've heard about, was Count Dooley Morrison, who was at Kennegarra, who was, I think he was a judge... Um, and he was, he was well-known throughout the land, you know, very well-known. Count Morrison. He was a single R. And again, we would always assume that all the Morrisons on Mall, because we were not a very big clan, but that they were all interconnected in some way. If you look on the clan map, of course, you'll find Morrisons up in the Butter Lewis, but I um, think that's a bunch of...
1: They came off the Armada.
2: Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> and you know that you know what Viking is?
1: Like? Viking
2: was the process.
1: Ah, Viking
2: was not the reading. people who came and did the raping and yeah, pillaging. Yeah. It was, it was Colin was talking about this recently. It's what they did Aye. was going Viking. Am yeah. we you know. I'm a up a Viking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: oh, I, I <laughs> I'm,
2: oh corny I'm a British. How are I'm a ski in a Viking shirt. Oh,
1: exactly. <laughs> I'm a horn, Garst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, yes, indeed. Oh. That, uh, oh, that's amazing. Um, so, going back, well, that's... And so, within your family, so your dad was Colin.
2: That's right.
1: Yeah. What, where, were, where were Colin's folks from? What about his parents?
2: Their uh, parents, he was over at NC Treshnish area. Right. And in fact, I remember rightly, his mother and father were both Morrisons, although they were a long way, you know, not, not connected in any way. Mm-hmm. But I know his, his grandfather was a weaver over in Burg, on the Burg, this Burg. You know, yeah, the one in the, 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 t- the t- Northamall, yeah, yeah, in that area. And moved around a bit. He was... Mm-hmm. Um, he was an ANC when he was a small child because he went to Kilninian school. Oh, right, okay. And they walked five miles over the hill to the school and five miles back every day. Oh. Um, And oh, they, they lived in Morris. yeah, lived in Tibermorris some of the time. There's a hell of a story I've possibly told you already yeah. about his brother. Yeah, who, I think that's worth saying. He died. Um, he'd fallen off, it was the old school in Vermont and he'd fallen, or been pushed, whatever, off the wall, landed on the road down below, and came back into the school, concussed, and the teacher thought he was taking the mickey, and he gave him a thrashing, and he came home, and he died, and that was the way things worked in these days, um, you imagine that happening nowadays, you know, yeah. court case from here to hell and back, you know. Wretched. So, mm-hmm. That's the sad part. There would have been another brother uh, who was killed in the war, in the first war. Mm. Uh, we used to have a plaque. John, he was a John Morris. used to have a plaque and a medal that they all got, especially when they snuffed it, which millions of them did this, you know.
1: And is that who you're named after?
2: Um, I suppose so, because he was actually... My grandfather was a John Morrison as well. Ah, okay. And he was quite known as... He was known as rather than Ian. Yeah. He was called John or Johnny... Uh, he wrote uh, kind of doggerel songs fantastic uh, as they did in these days before the days of television and he would he would write a song just in the on the occasion of the work of the day, you know hoshi scenery teakarawakki new um and i don't remember any more of it but wow. but it was it was just done there and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think they had a far more sociable kind of time in these days, even at work, yeah. I think. There wasn't. You didn't have a work study man coming around with a stopwatch telling them what they had to achieve, when they had to stop and start, um, and what the target was. And yeah. All that. Cool. So, we come to you, to your dad, and Colin. Um, what, what, what was, what was he like? He was, uh, he was, well, not like. For a start, he was quite short. He was about five foot six. Really. Sort of stocky. Because you're six one. Uh, well, I used to be, oh, I, used to be <laughs> I used to be six feet, and I'm shrinking as people do as they get older. Both
1: Colin and I are uh, five foot eleven and three quarters. Oh, right. He's the only other uh-huh. person I know that's like oh, three well, quarters. <laughs> I was, I
2: was six foot in my identity card when discharge book when I was at sea, when you had to. Right things like that. Fair complexion. What was it? No, fresh complexion, no distinguishing marks. And that was very important. Uh,
1: Yes, of course. Uh,
2: Not to have, you know, you see all these people going about with all these tattoos all over them, and we made damn sure when I was at sea that you never had a tattoo, because it was too easy to identify (laughs) you if you got into any sort of bother, say, when you were ashore, for example. Exactly, identifying <laughs> marks, the words of, love and hate yeah, tatted on yeah. knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh-huh. uh. bruised knuckles and the... Yeah. yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. so,
1: so... So, your dad, what did... them? Um, what? Obviously, obviously, people had multiple jobs. What, was, what yeah, did he,
2: he do? he started off as a, really, as a, well... Um, he went to. He left school at 14, as they did in these days, mm. and he went to work for Mackenzie's at Calgary, where wow. he was treated like SH1T, right. uh, as they did in these yeah. days. And uh, I know he, he must have worked there for a year or two anyway, yeah. but gradually got out of that, and he became a, a carter, because he worked with horses and he did ploughing and all that sort of ah. thing. And we used to have a picture at home actually of a ploughing match with, Aye. and they, they, the horses beautifully decorated, you know, with all the, yeah. the polished, um, I mean the picture was very faded, but I remember that.
1: Where were the pl- yeah. where did the ploughing matches take place in those days?
2: Although any any decent sized farm really, I can remember being at a ploughing match as a small child down wow. at Frackadale, Wow. on the face, you know, when you've... If you're going along the street below Angus's house there, and yeah. that face in front of you, yeah, that yeah. whole thing being ploughed. I think they were starting to move into uh, tractor ploughing at that time as well. So they were both, I, my memory could be could slightly skewed if there, but I was certainly at more than one, but that was the one ploughing plowing match I remember, and there were certainly horses at that one. Although it was a big day, yeah. big day out, you know, and there would be, I don't know, a ten or a dozen anyway at these um, and how
1: long would it take? Would it be done sort of
2: rigorously and quickly? Or- I, no, 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 no. Went on all day, but I think I suspect because we always well, they always I think I was only at one or two others, um, but they probably started very early in the morning. Right. Um, so by the time the general public got there, quite a lot of it had been done already. Right. But it was a big science, and there were there were judges, of course, and you know if it. There was a veered off yeah. by five centimetres, that was it. It was, it was out of the Fames game. Logan, yeah. yeah, yeah, but um, they wow. took, it, took it very seriously, of course. You know, it was, uh, I guess, must have had Clydesdales, I suppose, you know, big heavy horses that he used. And I do remember, yeah, that picture of my father holding these horses and being five foot six, and these horses were way, way <laughs> <up> above him. <them. laughs> Uh, but anyway, became a carter after that. So they used to cart, the puffers used to come into Croy and they would cart coal and other goods, I suppose, from there. You know, they come in alongside the pier then. And then gradually, as lorries came in, he became, he had lorries. Um, and then uh, during the war, he was, I suppose, considered as a, an essential worker or something. So he was actually out in Tyree with his driving lorries. Right. Uh, on the runway, when they were, you know, because they had an RAF station out there, and he nearly—I remember him telling me—he nearly got run over by a Spitfire one day because <laughs> nobody had told him that he wasn't to. There should have been a warning gone out, but he was driving this wee lorry across the runway and <laughs> Spitfire came over the top of him, kind of close, you know. Yeah.
1: Did he enjoy being untidy?
2: I don't know that he did because by that time, well. He and my mother were married, of course, and she was back here teaching. So, although she used to go out and visit right enough, but I think, I don't think the digs were very salubrious. I think it was a fairly uh, penance to be going through just because they were a young couple at that time, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But anyway, yeah, that was. So, Ellie Ellie was born in 40. 40.
1: Uh, yeah, really? 19,
2: 1940. Gosh, yeah. wow. Uh, so, And then I was post-war bulge, of course, in yes, Forty-seven. Yeah.
1: Um, so um, he went from from Tyree back home in the uh, the war and wh- where did he establish the business? Did he have pre- a premises outside of the mill or was it all in the mill? Well, it
2: was all about the mill. Um, and he just did... Well, I, I don't remember him actually operating lorries, but he certainly did that, because he must have been back here some of the time during the war as well. I remember him telling a story about coming back with, there was a wee man called Alan Daly who owned the shop in Derwig, you might have heard of him. Not Alan, heard him at I think all he was all. a McDonald, and he, he looked like a wee monkey, <laughs> he really did. And Have you ever seen that thing I brought back from somewhere exotic, of a, a little head made out of a coconut, I think it's oh, scarce yes, yeah, 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 yeah. oh, well yeah. they looked exactly like that. <laughs> like that, but anyway, he had the shop in the village, and my father used to, a quite, whatever, <laughs> 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 he had, uh, my father used to take his goods over from the, fi- the boat that would come in, uh, into Burmari, now back in these, even in my time, there was a cargo boat come up from the Clyde every week, the I think the last one was the lochard, and he would be collecting stuff in his lorry and taking it over. And he ran out, because the petrol was rationed during the war and everything. He ran out of petrol somewhere over the road, and there was a half-bottle of whiskey in the vehicle, and he poured it in, and he managed it, because he got himself back anyway. Uh, (laughs) And there was another time, and of course getting tyres and tubes and all that that was very difficult as well, and he had punctures coming over the road. And eventually walked, I don't know how many miles, back to Alan Dally's to this to the shop, and explained to him that he couldn't get back. And Alan Dally, I think he had a wee van or something, and he maybe went off and got some of the goods. And about three o'clock in the morning, he said to my father, "If I wasn't so tired, I would have run you home." So my father had to walk for the next two miles as well. For goodness. Okay. So, but that. Phew. That's par for the course. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Yeah. You had
1: a lovely um, tale uh, when we were staying in the mill years ago, and um, you, you spoke about what he would say to you at night time when you were going to bed. Uh-huh. It was about was it sailing away to call?
2: Oh yes, uh, That was uh, there was a man uh, at the clacken. You know the house between Seaview and what they call the Pink Cottage, you know, at the head of the loch there, called Murchison. And he always remembered he had this boat upside down, clinker built, I don't know, what size, 15 feet or something, sat at the top of the loch just opposite the house. And whenever anybody asked him, what he was going to do with this boat. He would say, oh, he was going to fix it up. And, oh, she'll sail to call, he would say. So my father used to say that to me when I was a wee kiddie, I suppose. I will just sail to call and I would drift off, you know. Oh, lovely. (laughs) So I suppose uh, I don't remember that story very clearly. but anyway.
1: And And, um, um, what did he do for the, the, because he died quite young, didn't he? Died at
2: 62. Two, I think it was, I was in the middle of the Pacific at the time um, and that was one of the things that made me believe in telepathy oh. uh, I've probably told you this before as well because I knew he'd had uh, I was about 16 I was working for the Oban Town Council in the summer holidays, I'm still in school uh, so I did sort of five weeks with him and during that time so I was staying in Oban um, he was taken into hospital, and it was the old chest hospital at Glenshielich in these days. So he had a heart attack, and he had angina for about five years. Oof. So, yeah, I was away, I was on my second ship, I think, it was the Jersey Bridge, so it would have been 67, um, and he, that's right, he was born in 1905, so he was 62, and I do always remember, uh, we were on day work, I was just still a cadet at the time, I was going off to sleep, and I distinctly heard my mother saying to him, because she's a oxygen, she was always scolding him for lifting heavy things, because he wasn't supposed to with, in these days with his angina. Yeah. If they'd known about half an aspirin yeah. in 1967, he might have lived an awful lot longer, but they didn't. And the next morning, we were having a smoke break. It was in my cabin. The other cadets were in with me, and we sitting there. And the old man, very unusually for the old man, the captain, coming yeah. down to a cadet's cabin door at eleven o'clock in the morning, um, and he looked in the door and he saw us all sitting there. And he said, "Oh, it's okay. I'll come back there." Um, and he, did, I waited in for an extra five minutes, and he came to the door. And as he, as I opened the door, I said to him, "It's my father, isn't it?" I knew exactly, um, and he said, a telegram had come through the ship. Um, So I always found that quite bizarre that that I sort of knew
1: a connection on the other
2: side of the world. Yeah, so that's the way it works. Sometimes I had one or two other experiences of that, but that was the most pronounced one I've ever had.
1: That book there, "The Gallic Otherworld" by John Gregson Campbell, yeah. that's very interesting. That's yeah. got loads of uh, stuff on this sort of thing and and folklore to appease, uh, you know, the classic milk thing out for the for the wee folk and things like that. Yeah, kind yeah. of get, yeah. But there's a lot of stuff in there, and and there's a few. It mentions Callum the Cruik, uh-huh. the storyteller from Croix, apparently, yeah, who, yeah. and he was the minister in Tyree, I think, or uh-huh. doctor in Tyree, Gregson Campbell. And so it's all connected to this part. It's, uh-huh. it's a phenomenal yeah, book. It's yeah. absolutely yeah. amazing. Um, and I was having a conversation just a few weeks ago uh, in a when I was on the road uh, with a lady in, in South East, and she was saying when she was younger, she was taught the protocol, the etiquette of talking to the dead. The first thing you do is, you, do, if, you if you're if of... If you can see them, you you ask them. How can I help? What do you need? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a, a, a bridge. So right. yeah, it's fascinating.
2: The other side to my father was that he was, well, both my father and mother were, were keen, they uh, were Gaelic speakers, but yeah. he sang a lot of Gaelic songs. Yeah. And uh, what I do remember in my younger days was there were lots of Cayleys, you know, and because before these screens come into the corner of your house, you know, <laughs> if, if you, you know, if somebody said in these days, now I'm going to put this little square man in the corner of your house and he's going to talk absolutely, Uh, He's going to pour
1: shite into your living room every day for the rest of your life.
2: (laughs) You would have said, No, I'm not having that. Can
1: I have some more government
2: propaganda, please? (laughs) (laughs) Let's have the BBC on every day. (laughs) Uh, So, no, you wouldn't have done that. So, uh, but that was, I do remember the Kayleys and I remember going to places as well. I remember going to Hound again. Yeah. Possibly told you that. Wow. With we, Callum McLean who worked for the School of Scottish Studies with this amazing big oh, gadget with wow. these big twiddly things on the top, and it was called a tape recorder. Oh, and they wow. sang songs. Oh, Alec Bake, who would be a relative of Alistair's and yeah, Tommy's that we're talking yeah. about. Um, can't remember what the, the they were originally McDougall's. Yeah. Um, and he sang songs and told Shanachie all night into this tape recorder just in incredible, He just went on and on, and of course in these days a song was much more of a story than it is oh, now, yeah. so there might be 27 verses mm-hmm. in the song, and he would know every one of them, you know, and it would just go on, and he was incredible, called him Alec Bake, of course, because he was huge, he was a big, big man, you know, <laughs> Bake being a small man, yes. uh, so it was a bit like the... Teacher, uh, with an English teacher in Melbourne High School, they called Curly because he he'd been in the POW camp where the the wooden horse was in fact. Oh my goodness! Maybe, I don't know if not at the he same know time. Edinburgh? No, <laughs> <laughs> but but he was absolutely, completely and utterly he had a steel plate in his skull apparently. God. So he didn't have a hair on his head. So they called him Curly. <laughs> I they like similar, and him and his there was his brother Duncan. Ah. Uh-huh. A very quiet man didn't uh-huh. say very much, and Katie, who had quite a lot to say for herself, so she but she just made cups of tea and poured it into people and poured out drams all night. And she was a very she was a big lady, uh-huh. not more ways than one. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. yeah, so but uh, all that stuff will be in the School of Scottish Studies still. I'll try and find a link to it because uh, yeah, yeah, Top Cal- of the Wilkish as well. Yeah, well Callum so uh, Solly's brother, you know, who I mean, he, he worked for. School of Scottish Studies. They were an amazing family in John, his bro- other brother, was rector of Hoban High School when I was there, all the time. I was there. From Rassie. Gordon McLean's connected as well. That's so right.
1: That's yeah. it, that's yeah. Yeah. We'll, come, we'll come on to more on uh, Rassie and the connection there in a moment. So, um, let's, let's find out a bit about your mum. Like, so your mum, her roots are very interesting in that there's a link to the past in a very palpable
2: way that Aye, uh, this to do with the evictions. Aye. Yes, aye, uh, well, her father um, was, we, we often have discussion have wind about Wind
1: roaring outside as uh, we bring this up. Uh, aye, <laughs> absolutely,
2: very appropriate. Um, nine years old, when they were evicted uh, from Suisnish, or to Suisnish, I can never remember which, which way round that was, but the point being that he could remember firsthand and because he looked till he was 90 something. So he could remember first time. And she was born when he was 70. Her mother was 49, going on 50. She was the last one of the family. So that's how
1: Whoa, her, her
2: having died in 97, I think it was, uh, was one of the few people with almost first hand knowledge of the evictions from her father having yeah, yeah. actually been evicted. Um, and that probably led also to a general feeling of anarchy that we have in our family anyway, um, because that was between that and what I'd mentioned about my father going to work for these people where he was like a wee slave to begin yeah. with, you know. So all that sort of thing made us quite um, anarchic against the, the ruling classes if you like.
1: Did he describe what happened? Did he, did he say or does he just remember being
2: I, I don't know that he would remember or have all that much to say yeah. about it and whatever he had would certainly have been more accurately described by my mother who again that may be recorded yeah. I said I know that she was well. we we know Tom Devine quite well Aye. and he in fact she went down and did a talk in classical uni I think yeah. when, in her must have been in our eighties by then yeah. um, about that very subject. Yeah. But as I say to my punters every day, what we don't know, we'll make up. You know, <laughs>
1: that's very fine. That's the whole point of this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So when the Martians came, were you? a fr- <laughs> <laughs> Exactly.
2: All right. Well, I, I was in Tahiti at the time. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, ah. But well. You know, it's, it's funny. <laughs> you you tell stories. Uh, You've heard of Doikes. yes. In fact, of course. you've probably heard Eric's and Agonis, yeah. Eric Spence's wee thing that he did with Deeks. Did you see that interview that he did? Oh, is that the
1: thing where they're see? standing in front
2: of the missionist? Yes, that's right. Yes, uh, I think he probably did. Was just, it on Facebook? was way way back. I think it was on Facebook. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Great musician. We, we played. We had the same band. Oh. Him and Charlie, course, Charlie Kirkpatrick and myself. And a wee guy called Donald McLean. We used to play at dances from we school in Auburn. It was good, good fun. Yeah. Eric, a great, uh, really good pianist and accordionist as well. And he turned out to be the fastest guy in the school. Yeah. And then they come in from the sort of trials that they had for the sports one day, and everybody went, Oh, Eric's quicker at the 100 yards than anybody else on the planet. <laughs> Brilliant. He's <laughs> just <laughs> fast. Um, but Eric did a, an interview with Doix and some of the stories. Um, Dykes was he used to go out to Tyree for his holidays in the summer he would buy a wee leaky boat and get an outboard somewhere that he would get going, it would get him out, him and his long haired mate, they would go out to Tyree and they would put up a bender in Tyree and they would live there for the summer and he would sell his, he would con somebody <laughs> into buying his boat <laughs> for a fortune and, and uh, you know, but I remember one day <laughs> being in a cafe in Tormorri with, I think my mother and my sister were there and I don't know Probably. No, I'd been at sea, that's right. I'd been away by that time. And I could hear this voice behind me. I knew fine, it was Dykes talking to these tourists. <laughs> and he was, the yarns, I mean, because he just sponged all his life. Yeah. Like that, yeah. How he lived. And he, ah, can we get a shilling for a cup of tea, you know, in the street? And then once he had enough of them, straight into the McDonald arms. And uh, anyway, he, he's, And he's telling these people these stories about all the places all over the world that he'd been and my geography was always pretty good even before I went to see yeah. and he was inventing these fantastic exotic names that you've never heard of oh, such places in your life amazing <laughs> he, was, he was a great storyteller when I sailed
1: on the, the dengue oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Aye, whole, the whole lot
2: yeah. funnily
1: enough George and I were talking about him yesterday someone else had said that he uh, used to uh, make money by uh, being uh, Tober Murray's
2: traffic warden i uh, are going to charge you
1: for parking there I'm sorry that's going to cost you <laughs>
2: I, I'm sure he wouldn't. He, I wouldn't put it past him, right? You know? But the the McAllisters, uh, they were all amazing raconteurs anyway, you yeah. know, a very funny story. Uh, the, the, I'm sure you probably heard this from somebody else anyway. It was Marky Dan, who, yes. the name of the place over in Oban now yeah. was named after him. And I remember him on the old Columba coming over in the ferry one day and a whole bunch of locals there. And within the 45 minutes it takes to come across... They're all in the bar having a pint, um, and uh, people like Stuart Bowman and just a whole bunch, you know, people who were big characters in their own right, if you like. But by the time we were getting into Craig and everybody was just round Markie Dan, who was telling stories. And they just, of course, the more of an audience, he was the ideal... Uh, entertainer and the better the audience was the bigger the audience was the the more he was stimulated by it and the bigger the stories got. Do you remember Fantastic. Any of them at all? Well the, the the classic one was was the one where they were they were towing I were towing out in the passage, you know, the passage of Tyree out here. Mm-hmm. Or so on, and we caught the telephone cable. We were pulling the phones off the dressers and Tyree. <laughs> That, that was Brilliant. there were lots and lots and like I said, they got bigger, the exaggeration got greater yeah. and They got amazing people.
1: Ah, fantastic. Yeah, so your mum was from uh Sky itself. She was
2: uh school us just outside Broadford. Uh she went to Portrie High School and then uh could obviously go on from there to Glasgow University where she'd got an MA and then she did it was Jordan Hill, she went for her teacher training. And then she looked around and she ended up... She used to come to Mull. Her brother was a minister in Salon, Uncle Alec. And so I think as a student, she used to come up here in the summer and holidays. So she knew a wee bit about Mull. And anyway, she came to teach in... I think she came to Tubermory, first of all.
0: Right.
2: She taught some of the time during the war. I would need my sister to confirm this, but I think it was during the war down in Karsig. It was a school as well. Really? Uh, which would have been almost more cut off. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually, anyway, she was in Mornish. Uh, and my mother and father first met when my father and Willie Mornish, who was also from Sky, he and my old man used to do a bit of poaching. Um, and they were up somewhere near Mornish School this day and they thought somebody who shouldn't have had actually spotted them. So they dashed into the house and my mother was living in the schoolhouse at the time, and they hid the guns under her bed. And I think that was the first meeting that they had. <laughs>
1: very romantic. <laughs> very romantic. I'll just, just
2: put this on you. Yeah, so that's the way it started.
1: Gosh. Uh, yeah, yes, so your mum is a school teacher, but um, teaching was, was just one of the things. She, she was very passionate about the Gaelic language and culture.
2: Oh, aye, aye, She certainly uh, promoted that a lot. And we were also all... I don't know that... It's quite a difficult one, that, that, that the the Gaelic language was promoted as much then. There was still that remnant of yeah. the old uh, bias against Gaelic. Uh-huh. And Bannerman, John Bannerman was his name, he was Ray mikis Father, remember Ray Meek, who used to be the MP. He was going around at one point, he was I think he was quite well off. Um, he was going around all the wee primary schools in certainly in Argyll and possibly the further north as well, and talking Gaelic to all the children to see what the Gaelic reception sort of was. Now, my mother took me into the primary school in Monash when I was four. God. Um So this was two years later, I would have been six years old. And while when I went to school at four, I probably had, I used to say I didn't have any English. I'm sure I had English because my parents would speak English as well as Gaelic to me. But I was brought up by an old lady called Mary Flora and she didn't have very much English. So basically my first two or three years in the formative years would have been quite a lot of Gaelic. Within two years, in this little primary school with only sometimes down to half a dozen children or less, maybe a ten, a dozen at the most, uh, the peer group pressure was such that when John Bannerman said, uh, I said, I know it, but I don't speak it. In two years. Um, And that shows the kind of influence that uh, even out here then, So many people that just didn't speak Gaelic at all, especially amongst the smaller children. And a lot of the parents who were encouraged, oh, you'll get on better, son, if you speak English, you know. Mm. And that that was the thinking. And so many of these people, people that um, grew up in the village there as well, strangely, who you know yourself, you met them, most of them now, I'm sure, who somehow or other, the Gaelic got lost. Yeah, I don't know where.
1: Well, it's the same in my family, so it's it's the cultural cringe factor. Isn't yeah, it? it's yeah. it's a brutality. i my gran, uh, like your mum, was very um, proactive in and Gaelic uh-huh. things, uh-huh. and I think they were very lucky in that the teacher was quite supportive of Gaelic and culture. Yeah, if yeah, I remember yeah. rightly, really, that she had anyway. Uh-huh.
2: Mm-hmm. The the most uh, I remember particularly that we we did um, was the, the mods the gall- and my mother right. uh, certainly encouraged everybody to do everything, so I was on on the stage. I was on <laughs> the floor. <laughs> of, the, you the, of the little <laughs> committee room in the bottom at the back of the Aris Hall when I was four, singing "Hooray, Lanyu, <laughs> Hooray, Lanyu." Only then, and he could in Launday, and I didn't even know where in Launday was because that's the old name for Eile, of course.
0: I've
1: never known
2: that. Did
1: you not, Mulligan
2: Launday? Mulligan Launday. Yeah, that aye. That was the very first song I had to ah, sing I, as, a, as a little that. child. Um,
1: Gosh. Gud oh. in
2: Launday krætur kja små kjeri særgrían inislimbálur snumfið. From of Yanvi Howlown or something wow I, I didn't crazy. even know I remembered that that's amazing that so good. that that went on but the only other teacher we had in Mornish was mm-hmm. Ella McKenzie who was that though? now she was uh, you remember Alison Bartholomew who just died recently yes her mother right okay um, and I could say on the one hand we tended to get stuff that was a wee bit classically orientated right. But I'll also throw in here that she was actually one of the McLeod's of Dunvegan. She was one of that family, oh. uh, but she'd obviously been educated down south. I remember she I was see. Commander Mackenzie's wife, uh-huh. uh, but she would come in once a week and teach us music. Now, having said that, that's the inverted snob in me, because she also taught us the Gaelic songs that oh, my yeah. mother had given her, to, and taught us how to read solfa, I think it was, in these days. So, the reason we managed to win competitions in the, in the, the local mod, first of all, uh, were probably through, you know, teaching. But I do remember her being very uh, strict about sliding. You're not, you must not slide. You know how the country Western singers go, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you mustn't slide. Oh, and there, was a, there were a lot of strict oh, strict rules. Oh, That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so there were a lot of strict rules about how you did it. And these were related back to classical music, of course. To jump forward quite a long way into the 90s, when I went on tour with the Mull Theatre, oh, yes, yeah. myself and Isabel McCaskill were bilingual people. Yeah. Partway through the play, we sang the Eriske love lilt yeah. in the Marjorie Kennedy Fraser version, oh, right. which was as you say with the hands clasped on the. And I was doing our pedios on the keyboard, <laughs> and then in the very end, Ispel in the spotlight sang this to the old tune, and even we were on the stage and we had the hairs up in the back of our necks, you know. But the funny thing was, when we did, when we performed that in the island of Eriskay, um, the the people sang along with it. This is, a, this is a dramatic performance, supposedly. And the people in the audience were used to going to Cayley's. Oh, they're singing that. So, oh, well, well, just sing along. And they sang it in the style of the Free Church Presenting. Oh,
1: amazing.
2: Which was
1: full of sliding.
2: Full of sliding, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then at the end, they sang along with the old version, the proper version as well. That's
1: fascinating.
2: And, and that, so regardless of what Marjorie Kennedy Fraser did, the truth will out eventually, and people have obviously researched back to the point where they've found, I'm not saying it'll be exactly note for note the same as the original version, but well, The it,
1: folk process happens anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right. Um,
2: so, yeah, and the, the, the problem, as you know, with Marjorie Kennedy Fraser was that she wrote it down in classical notation. And then you've lost with it And a way. It's the, the, this, the yeah, timings, yeah. particularly yeah. the, the thing. and right. and loss of grace notes and all Aye. these things. I mean, you listen to some like uh, is it Kathy Catherine Kathleen McInnes? Yes. Who has that break in her voice? Now it's only a tiny wee translation into the country and western mm-hmm. what we would call sloppy sentimental stuff. Yeah. yeah. But very very close, oh, yeah. um, and yet it's a much more moving thing than. I mean, I can't stand makes of sopranos. Anyway, at the best of times, but, but you know, it's so different from central nervous system goes against them, the ex- ex- Exactly, oh, exactly, yeah. and all the glasses shatter around <laughs> about.
0: Yeah.
1: So tell me a little bit about Mary Flora and uh, her, her family, Who,
2: or her son. I don't really know much about Mary Flora. She was just there. I think she, um, she might have been herself. She might have been from the other side of somebody's blanket, I'm right. not sure. And Dalekin certainly was, yeah. although they believed that his father was the Scot and the Scart was a man who lived down in Elder's House, you know, Bernkroyg, you know, the yeah, yeah. house that was rebuilt down there. Uh, when I was a child, it was just a ruin there. Uh, and there's stories, various stories about the scarf, but one of them was, because you had a big family, there was no such thing as birth control in these days, um, and when a child was born, they just took it down to the sea, and if it came up, they took it back in, and if it didn't... That was Wow!
1: That's horrific. I guess about that
2: one. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Um, well, that's something you need to look into, I think, because um, that's shocking. one of the traditions in St Kilda uh-huh. was that uh, there were certain matriarchs were present at the childbirth, and only these matriarchs were allowed to be there. And they discovered that one of the traditions they had was that they smeared the umbilical cord with fulmar oil. Yeah. And so a lot of these children, babies, died of tetanus yeah. very soon. Yeah. But if you look at that from another angle, St Kilda has a finite space to it with a finite amount of survival, uh, food, fuel, whatever, and it could only support so many people. And you can't help but wonder, before we got slightly more sentimental and emotional about yeah. uh, keeping children alive, keeping
1: humans alive yeah, that
2: yeah. the the way to preserve the species there was not to have too many Around. humans. So um, that's just a wee theory of my own, but I just wonder where that um, tradition gosh, would come from.
1: Feel, yeah, gosh. That's... Pause for thought of that, yeah.
2: I... But anyway, Mary Flora uh, had Dolechin and Donald. They lived down at Scutu down there, you know, where the wee house was. Did you ever see it before? No, you wouldn't oh, have seen long it. My t- have you ever seen any pictures of it? I wonder if there are Pat any. Pat drew one. She said years yeah,
1: ago, but I yeah, don't. I've never right. seen any photos of it at all. I can
2: remember us as a, I think as a teenager, I remember us going down there one day on a New Year's Day, and Scrap Balfour Paul. You've heard us talking about... Scrap. Scrap, who yeah. had Queenish. Uh, we'd come over and he, he was a big fan of my mother's. They were big pals. He mm-hmm. took his children to her school and mm-hmm. he would come over. And I remember somebody saying... You know, it's a New Year's Day would be quite a big day in these times. And uh, somebody said, yeah, we'll need to go and see Mary Flora. So there was this deputation come down through the bogs there from our house down to Mary Flora's. And the big squad, including this guy who was rightfully actually what they call it, aristocracy yeah. he was the son of the Lord Lyon for Scotland you know so he, and he was a very gen fellow, an old threadbare kilt and I'm sure you've heard the scrap. Mm. <laughs> if you can imagine the two ends of the old class the society as it was yeah. then, with Mary Flora um, yeah. and I think that day I think this fellow I was talking about my old man's pal Willie Mornish I think he was there and he, would, he w- went on ahead and he got her up to high door, but all these people and the, the, the lords and the ladies that were coming down <laughs> to see her. And there's this tiny wee house, the room that we sat in with about 10 people in, it, it wasn't any bigger than this yeah. we're in here just now. Yeah. And the old slowery, the open fire, the open grate. Wow. And the slowery for holding, you know, there was a slowery, the chain that you held. I didn't the, know the name for it. But held the can... pot on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in the middle of the fire and the old black kettle boiling away there and. Oh, so amazing and suit and smoke because aye. it didn't always go up the chimney and the chimney didn't get swept very often. So every now and again, you get a blow down and Don't. <laughs> everybody gets covered. But you just clean out the whiskey and start carry eating. on.
1: Yeah, aye. Mm. so what's
2: the like as well? What was the Was uh, he was, he was a clever guy, he was cleverer than he knew, I think, as well. I know that during the war he was he was in Burma he was, he saw a lot of real action there um he was a good mechanic uh in fact when he, he used to help my father with his lorries and vehicles um when he was back home he i heard them talking about him driving an army jeep through the street in Derby at about seventy miles an hour what? these days but then there wouldn't be anything else there yeah. you know so he was a bit mad um he he had he was offered a staff sergeant's job at the end of the war uh, so he could have stayed in the army so he was obviously, he, wasn't sergeant, but he was a sergeant a very able guy uh, but instead he said no and he came home and his mother was heard to say, somebody had heard the rumour that Donald was going to get married and his mother Mary Flora was heard to say well if yes it will be to a sister of Johnny Walker she said <laughs> because he became a wee bit too Heavy in the hooch. Yeah. What was amazing because they used to come up and down the path uh, through the bogs from the house to our place, and she get. in fact her coal. Uh, I think my father used to take it over for her, and it was just inside our fence there at the cooey field there. Yeah. Um, and she would come up and take it, and she used to, I can remember her, she was near 70, and she would be stalking down there with big logs of wood for the fire. You'd see her passing the house. Awesome. <laughs> And she she had these planks across the boggiest bits. And Dolichin would come back late on a Saturday night, having been in the Belchroy and quite often banging in the door. I remember my parents used to put the lights out early on a Saturday (laughs) night because he'd be banging the door wanting to come in for a kelly. Mm -hmm. And he would go down through the bogs, somehow get home. Uh Um, And the next morning he would have a big thirst on him and he would come up, he always came up that way and he would have the the possibly even the suit on, but certainly the black polished shoes, and he would arrive at our door, and you could see a face in these shoes. Wow! I would. There wouldn't be a speck on them, and how the hell he ever did that, I don't know. Especially with a big hangover from the night before. <coughs> Not I mean, an easy yeah. thing at
1: all. No,
2: no. Gosh. But Dalkin, uh, he was. My father offered him to employ him as well as a mechanic, because my father had a fairly where the where the hutty was, you know, he'd, he'd a, there was a roof right over that, so he had several vehicles in there and Donald, as I say, was a good mechanic, he could have helped, you know, with looking after these, but no, he, he went off and worked for various road builders and contractors and never really made <coughs> anything <coughs> much more of it. You can understand,
1: if you'd if experienced Burma at oh. its worst.
2: No such thing as PTSD in these days. No, I never recognised it. You'd
1: be emotionally shattered for the rest of your life. Yes. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people about their school days and things, and mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, who we'll talk very briefly about it, but then go on to, to your adventures afterwards. Mm. Who were you at school with? Who were your peers in uh, in Oban?
2: Uh, Funny enough, I mentioned well uh, Charlie Kirkpatrick, who's a, a, yeah. a pal of mine. He was do, his band were doing Take the Floor there a while ago, and yeah. he was interviewed by somebody, and he did. Uh, I was going to say admit that's not strictly fair, but uh, <laughs> we there was a piano in Cabaye. I w- always. I'd always played an instrument of some sort. My father used to play a wee two-row button box, and that was the Uh first instrument. So I could play a few tunes in that. But there was no, I didn't have an accordion or anything. So I had to play something. Yeah, that's been part of me all my life. I have to play, and I've always said to people, people say, "Oh, can you play an instrument?" I said, "I can play every instrument badly." Yes, and uh, look around you in this room, <laughs> and you see exactly that. Alistair, <laughs> that wasn't <that> was good.
1: <laughs> no, it's <fine. laughs> I <don't like> it. <coughs>
2: I'm sorry. Uh But anyway, there was a piano there, so I started fiddling about with this piano when I was because I Tubbermore school was very poor in these days. Right. Uh, my sister had been there, and she in these days she finished at Tubbermore. finished at fourth year, so she went on to open uh, in fifth her fifth year and was completely out of her depth there and so I think she repeated a year but eventually because she always wanted to be a teacher yeah. um, and she eventually got her hires and moved on so when I I was 11 uh, just gone 11 uh, in the August uh, having finished primary what was it primary seven uh, I was due to go into first year and my parents said well we'll send you to open high school because there was uh, a boys hostel there
1: Gosh, right from the start then. So
2: I was just gone 11 when I was away from home, like mm. being in a boarding school, because yeah. in these days he didn't get back home at the weekends, he got home uh, mid-term holidays and the uh, big holidays, and that was it. So that was a big, big shock to the system, from Towards being land. a sort of uh, slightly larger fish in a very, very small pond in a wee Moorish school. How many kids were
1: in Moore area when you were a kid?
2: None. Um there, were, there would be a few coming up from Calgary. There were the Gardners families of Mcleans, and another family of Maclean's at Benin, who were oh, actually I, related. I think they were cousins. And they were all, also peculiar ones some of the time. For example, Colonel Finlay's daughter, Emma, uh, although she should have gone to Derbeg, he, again, he thought, well, Mornish was better. My mother obviously had a reputation as a better teacher or something. And so Emma... And so in my last two or three years, Emma was going, so he would pick us up nice. going to, to morning school. Um, before that, I must tell you a wee story. Um, <laughs> um, we used to, uh, there was a guy called Elrig, who was, oh, it was Callum, Callum's brother, mm-hmm. you know, all the, the, the co in I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And he used to work down at Calgary and he went on a motorbike. When I was just four or five, my mother and I used to walk up to school. If my father was away if there was a vehicle, but he couldn't take it. So, so we walked the mile up to school, come summer or winter, whatever, if the weather was like it is out there today, it was all the same, we just wow. walked up to school. But occasionally, Elrig would come along at the same time, and he would give us a lift, so my mother would go in the pillion in the back of the motorbike, and I would be sat on the fuel tank in <laughs> front of him, and he'd be going up Crochcour, you know, with all the, the bends, yeah. and the weather would be lashing rain and wind in our faces, and at the same time, he'd be turning around to my mother, talking to her, while he'd <laughs> Hearing up the road in this motorbike sheeching the sheet sheeching the is I it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we always seemed to make it you know <laughs> <laughs> of course the was for
1: your trees then as well it was oh
2: I, it was bare it was yeah. very uh, very open very exposed wow. you know at the top of Croco it was always blowing a I remember it was always blowing a up there any wow. uh, days but anyway so, uh, yeah, so, so were, it went to uh,
1: big fish in a small pond
2: uh, to being a very very small fish in a school with eleven to twelve hundred people in it. Open high school. So that that was a big shock system. Um, and yeah. uh, living in Kilbowie hostel with another thirty odd boys, thirty I think there were thirty five of us all there. Where there was in these days, you know all that long after the war, so pecking order uh,
1: uh traumatised teachers.
2: Violence name of the game. Um, um whoever was Top of the heap was top of the heap, you know, that's the way it So to put it very bluntly, the the first years got beaten up by everybody, and by the time you got to second year, you could beat up the first years, and (laughs) when you got to third year, you could beat up the second years and the first year. And that's the way people seem to look at it in these days, and that's how... That's
1: how British politics works.
2: Some of us, unfortunately, (laughs) yes, but some of us did try to pacify things a bit. I do remember a mate of mine from Tarbert, Ian Smith and I, talking about this and said, well... It doesn't have to carry on like that, no. you know. I always remember him saying, it's far better if you can command respect rather than demand respect. And it was very good. It was always stuck with that one. So that was me in Oban for seven years. Because uh, in these days, I don't know what it is now, but you had to, re- if you, for university entrance, you had to have your highest in two years. Yeah. Uh, so I... It was something I had to get that I'd missed in my fifth year. i right. was still a year younger than everybody else anyway. Yeah. So. And then uh, I... Because I'd always wanted to go to sea. And these days you could leave at 15. Uh, and I'd wanted to go to sea. And my, especially my mother's influence was, oh, no, you must go to university, you know. Because that's what she... She'd come out of a wee croft with a big family... Yeah. And that's what had made her life for her by yeah. getting a degree, and she knew lots of people. And yeah. I was talking about the McLeans; they were a prime example. Yeah. From Razi, all the all that family yeah. we're, were very highly educated. I mean, John John used to teach, and when he was rector, he used to teach Greek and Hebrew. Yeah. I can remember him sitting in the back of Dolpakes in the Gaelic class with one to one teaching the really oh, wow. very very smart pupils. You know, yeah. that learned these languages. Um, and the funny noises, yeah. you know, that came out the the Hebrew especially, yeah. very strange. Have you ever done
1: Yeah, of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. uh,
2: so it I went isn't. to uh, I I did what I was told and went to Strathclyde University for a year doing civil engineering. Right. But basically, I wanted to build bridges then, there and then. Yeah.
1: I
0: course.
2: didn't want to go through a continuation of school. I wasn't. No. Nah, I was all right be. in school. I didn't mind it. I wasn't didn't want to just carry on doing that I wanted sort of more I think that would be my father's influence that with him because I always when I was at home I always did things with him worked with him practical things lovely um, and I wasn't all that into the academic side and um, just before we move on to your adventures
1: uh, after uh, the brief uh, civil engineering for it, mm. but were there any Colossach
2: at school with you when you were there yes I think Eva Brown, who's related to you, yes, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. he he was Second there. Cousin, yeah. He was one of the guys also who played. He played accordion, still does, I believe, if he's still yeah, alive. He played. Oh yeah, um, yeah, he, he played he, at
1: my mum and dad's wedding.
2: Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, and he had his own certain style. Mm. He was a he was an interesting wee guy. Um, his dad was my great hero. Yeah, Uncle Hugh yeah. he was just fantastic. A very um, he was what we would call in these days a bit of a pattern merchant. Right? yes, I'm um, sure. And it, <laughs> but he, he was, I suppose, quite influential to in me as well because he did play something. Anybody that played any kind of music... I remember that we fell out... Like, uh, Nigel... Was it Evans? Um, he was in fifth or sixth year when I was in first year. And first time I actually ever heard anybody play a guitar... Uh, uh, acoustic guitar and uh, it was nice, just strumming it a nice guitar, it a nice tone to it as well. Um, used to sing occasionally, and um, I just thought that's the most amazing sound, it was yeah. so beautiful. Actually. I love that. We also had a fella who Richard Elder, they called the cod, who, a me, for slightly, slightly face like a but anyway he played played the accordion as well and he used to sing along with it and it was a song um It's Only Make Believe oh yeah remember that it goes up in it right. and he used to sing this. and you'd hear a wretched at the top of his voice with his accordion like it.
1: so you've mm-hmm. you've gone to Strathclyde Uni to do civil engineering what was the point where you went nah this is not what I want
2: to do I want to go to see I don't think there was a point I think it was uh, we Part of it was <laughs> gradually by mutual agreement, I think. Um, it was partly we were having such a good time as well. The mate of mine and myself, we got ourselves a, a bed set. Um, and uh, we probably spent too much time in the colours and by and not enough time in the classes, you know. There's right. a bit of that. Uh, but, and I just, I really didn't enjoy it. I suppose I'd always had kind of inbuilt friends as well you know through being in the hostel and the school yeah. and all the rest of it the peculiar cool, thing is I didn't know much about Mull because I'd gone away so early I didn't know the, the right. people on Mull of my own generation I mean obviously there were quite a few in Tubermury places uh-huh. like that who I didn't really know I probably got to know them more after I left school you know right. and uh-huh. meet them at dances and things uh-huh. like that um, but having been you know taken away at that stage um Going back a wee bit, I mean, the process even of getting to Oban in these days was quite quite drawn out.
1: What were the stops on the boards?
2: Uh, well, you coming home, say for a long weekend, if there was one, or um, the holidays, you got onto the ferry at quarter past one in Oban. If it happened to be a Wednesday, it went to Lismore. So it spent the best part of an hour in Lismore. Oh my God. It came over to Craig and Ewer, where the ferry boats came out, the launches, one or two launches that they ran there, these were kind of 30-foot launches, they came out and offloaded people and geese and whatever else. <laughs> um, then you went across to at, at the old pier on the outside, oh, you know the one you see, yeah. it's now the timber pier, I think. Yeah. Uh, There were some adventures there, I remember one day, because If they were taking a vehicle, this is the Loch and Bar we're talking about, Mm -hmm. wee, wee, wee boat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if they were taking vehicles on, they came on and off, drove on and off on planks, on two planks. And one day they had this big lorry, it's probably about the size of my pickup, but anyway, it was a big lorry for that time. And the tide was wrong and they got the lorry stuck with the planks having come up Ah. at one end before the back wheels were on. Oh. And that was a bit of a tricky one, and it took us at least two hours to, for the West Island mine to work its way around how to get this thing, which was, uh, what was it, they used to say, yeah. were you ever in a boat with your feet ashore, you know, the, yeah. it was a bit like that, half of the lorry on, yeah. half off. So that kind of thing used to happen occasionally. How did they solve it? I it? can't remember. Either the tide came up, or it was went down, or something. I don't know. But uh, maybe they towed it back off. I can't remember. Right. And then it would go across to Salon. right? And it would spend half an hour in there, um, taking and things on and off. And then it would go across to Drumlin, and it was a wee boat with a very very tall man used to come out. I'm sure he was about the same length as the boat was. <laughs> um and he kind of offloaded a few things and people off and on there. And then it would eventually get to Tiburmore and it must have been something like six o'clock. I mean oh in the winter time God. it was a it was a, a an expedition in itself, Aye. you know, when you think about it coming into Tiburmore. Gosh. Uh if I was lucky, if my father could do it, he would come to Salon sometimes and meet me or let me And same going back to school, so it wasn't quite so long.
1: Was there not a tale you had about one time where you had to leap onto the boat as well from the pier in Oban? Your dad was there. Ah, My father
2: was over one day at the end of term in the summertime and I was saying goodbye to my girlfriend at the time and uh, obviously cut it a bit fine. And the boat, they had actually let go, but the boat was just moving out (laughs) gradually. So I took a flying leap and landed at my father's feet in the deck. Mm. Sorry, Dad. (laughs) <laughs> also, I mean, the days of the Columba, and even oh, yeah. more recently, uh, before it all got tightened up, I've seen me go down to these fair driving down, yeah. and the the ramp, even on the bigger boat, going out of Craig Newer, the ramp is on its way up, and they would see you, you could drive down, and they would see put the ramp back down and put you on. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Nowadays, if you're, if you're a minute, half a minute past the half, half hour, hour, they, yeah. they tell you to exactly. go into the... Stand by the naughty lane. The naughty lane. That's the naughty right. Lane. The naughty step. Um,
1: so um you go to you go to see. How did you go about that process? What was the process? Did you go was it did you go to denim's? Was that that's
2: the, right, Aye, Denim's were
1: And how I, did you approach denims? Did you just chat the door or what No, do? no,
2: no. I think there were there were there were adverts for people to go to see in these days anyway, to become cadets and so on. Right. Um and so I must have applied to a few companies. I think and Denims must have accepted me.
1: And my dad was um, with Denham's as well, starting out. Yeah, he was with them right. for until the eighties.
2: I mean, they were quite happy to have me because I had university entrance qualifications yeah. anyway. But it did also mean that my sea time was reduced quite considerably from what I would have done. Say, if I'd gone at fifteen, sixteen, uh, the sea time would have been much longer. So I did my sea time for second mates and the four ships, I think. Um and then another couple of ships uh for before I could do mates. And then uh I was second mate for a few years and then by that time small family and
1: Yeah
2: I came ashore. So.
1: what do you remember the names of the ships you were on?
2: The uh, first ship I joined was the Ness Endeavour. And mm-hmm. that was whoops. That was uh, a fifty thousand tonne deadweight oil tanker mm-hmm. belonging to a company called Anglo Ness, which were Part Norwegian, part English, obviously you can tell by the name. Mm. And Ness, uh, somebody called Ness, I think, was the originator of that company. Uh, the called the Jersey Bridge, which was belonged to Clarksons. If you remember the travel agents, Clarksons, it's the same family. Yeah, they had a lot of uh, bulk carriers. So I was on Jersey Bridge sometime later. I was on the Scots Park. And a ship called the Mount Park, which was a boat carrier as well. I spent a taxi year out on that. Mm. Um, they had There was liquid sulphur carriers in nest Texas, which spent 17 days crossing the Atlantic to Beaumont, Texas. You loaded up with liquid sulphur, took it over to Rotterdam, discharged it in... 26 hours.
1: Do
2: you remember the smell of it still? I remember the smell of it still. <laughs> um, I remember a night in a lay-by berth in Rotterdam where there was a fire, they'd been working on something down. What you had with these liquid sulphur, you had a, a tank within a tank.
0: Yeah.
2: And normal tankers, well, these days, you had wing tanks in the centre tank. But with the liquid sulfur, this was an insulated tank within the centre tank. Yeah. with space all around it and heating coils to keep this stuff at 160 degrees or something. Right. Uh, and it, uh, there a lot of peculiarities. You had things on the deck were called Martians, which were special ventilators for the gas. to. But if you had heavy weather going across the Atlantic, it used to spew out the sulphur as well. And then you would have stalactites and stalagmites wow. created. And we used to have to go out and... Check these off like icebergs during Stinky the day bags, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and
1: what was liquid sulfur used for, or is it used for?
2: good point, I don't really know, um, I don't know r- all r- you r- use sulfur, stink bombs, yeah I don't know what all you use it for but yeah. I do remember the night that there was a fire and, oh, and that lay by birth uh, I think it was the third mate was going round doing his rounds on the deck at night and he came in, we were still in the bar having a pint and he came in and he said there's a fire out <clears throat> number three or whatever And we spent the night with the surface demand air with the suits on down, fighting this fire down underneath this tank. Oh my god! But we, on a regular basis, (laughs) used to go down there because these uh, the steam heating coils had what they called steam traps at the bottom, and though if the water the uh, steam condensed out, you you had to release the water out through into the bilges at the bottom. But also sometimes these pipes would burst so the liquid sulphur would go into them. And we had to clear the sulphur out of the traps as well. So you went down, uh, down this 60-foot ladder down to underneath these tanks, these steam traps, with a, a a blow lamp in one hand and a fire extinguisher in oh the other God's because sweet. when you melted it out you set it on fire so you put the fire out and you melted out a bit more and put the fire out. And that was, that was quite, quite regular. Really. Wow. So
1: Coming from Penmore, where was your first trip
2: to? Um, first time I flew we would have been to join that first trip, Ness Endeavour, we joined in uh, Willemshaven, I think it was in Germany. We so right. would have flown out there somewhere. And then I always remember this at night time, us getting onto this wee boat and going for miles out to see where this thing was anchored. And this this wall of steel, because yeah. it must have been light ship then. So there would have been 60 or 70 feet of steel that we went alongside, looking up and wow. going as far as I could see that way and as far as I could see that yeah. way. Um,
1: I remember that as well when I was a kid because I used to get taken off and go Traveling with dad, uh-huh. and I remember it was always nighttime. Never, never, yeah, 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 and yeah. going up the bloody ladder oh, yeah. as a wee man, I was oh ladder. God. Yeah. And we they mostly put down the the, the steps for us yeah. rather than that. But I think we might have done that. But I remember that the, the scale of it and the the fear I had of mm-hmm. of these steps going mm-hmm. up into it. oh man, it
2: was. No, I think I think for me it was all part of the adventure. It was good. I was a, I was totally wee though. I was yeah, really yeah. small. but no, I, know. No, I was well. Been 19 when I went, yeah. first of all. Uh, but what I do remember with that ship, well, you just went back to the Persian Gulf. Mostly you tied up to places that were hardly even connected to the shore.
0: Yeah.
2: And all you saw was sand anyway. But that ship, uh, we converted for, it was before they introduced Oboes, which were ore bulk oil carriers. Uh, and we converted her to carry grain for one. Trip from baikomu in Canada in the Gulf of St Lawrence to Madras in India, and it That's was a huge j- journey. Just after the Six Day War, so instead of going through the Suez Canal, we had to go around the Cape.
1: Oh my God!
2: And what was, was that like? No. What was going
1: around the Cape in a big beastie like?
2: Yes. We did. In fact, we called in at um, called in at the Cape for something. No, sorry, that was in Gibraltar, no, that's night. We collected 250 drums of this emulsifying stuff that we had to use to clean out all the Arabian crude wax that was down the holes. Um, and that was a horrific thing. I mean, we worked 18 hours a day for three weeks. So as a cadet, you're just slave labour. Um, and we were on Butterworth Watch, which is, I won't go into the, technical, the details of it, but it was pretty hard work anyway, very hard. Um, and then we loaded this grain to took it round to Madras. But the experience in Madras was, we arrived there and there was a ship called the Eastbound, which was a, an old South Korean ship uh, with 200 Indian gentlemen on it who were waiting for two things. One, to come on board us and they hoisted these huge big evacuators, like big compressors in reverse. Which uh, vacuumed out the grain because we we ah. didn't have hatches as such for a, for, right. as you would have on a normal bulk carrier. Yeah, right. Things are called McGregor hatches. Usually, that you slung just right back, sides, so you had the yeah. whole open hole. But the, these, you just had these little you had vents, with that you access vents into each tank yeah. with a lid on them, and and little um, hatches with bolted down that you the chippy lifted off, and then right. you put this big pipe down and souped it out. The reason we had 200 of these guys was to move these things about the deck from tank to tank. Well, the ship had 30, 32 usable tanks on so So we were, discharging, we were discharging, would you believe, into Liberty ships. My goodness. Ships carrying 3,000 tons or something, because yeah. we couldn't go into the harbour. And we also, we had to load a lifeboat and put these take the shifts on and off. But when we arrived that day, we took two tonnes of food out to them because I hadn't eaten for 48 hours or something. Oh, God. Eventually, after a bit of time, we got him to blow a pilot ladder down and I went up on the deck and organised a, a, a cargo hook down to lift this stuff. It was in big nets and things. And I always remember being on the top inside the bulwark and uh, this big bowl of stuff, uh, like... Um, what do you call them? These things that float around, and it was like uh, fruit, of, preserved fruit of some sort. Anyway, oh, right. and as it came over the bulwark, uh, all these hands, these like these cartoon arms, as if they stretched yeah. twice as long as they were capable yeah. of going into this. And I, I swear, by the time it reached the the deck, it was pretty much empty yeah. because they were absolutely starving. starving. Yeah. But we used to ferry them in and out, and oh, it was it was quite sad. But they all still had these tiny little yellow stinking cigarettes, and they all used to smoke these things, despite the fact they were starving. That was we were in there for three weeks, and it was quite an experience. I can still, I can almost still smell the underside of the harbour in Madras. Uh, I remember it's was going ashore one day.
0: Uh,
1: you got ashore, though? That yeah, yeah, real yeah.
2: Real. And we, we walked around and went to the markets and nice. so on. And, and uh, all the stalls selling pens uh-huh. because um, if you had a pen, it indicated that you could write. Uh-huh. And so they sold pens, big Biros, you yes. know. Crazy. But us, yeah, Crazy.
1: so what was it like, the process of coming home after that, so you've seen, you see, you see the world, you, you're away for six months at a time and you come home to the Croft. Mm. What was that experience like?
2: Mm. Well first of all i correct you in that you don't see the world because what do you see? You see the sea. Uh, yeah, exactly. I spent, yeah, especially the bulk carriers, I spent a lot of time in the Pacific. Uh, we had um, one trip, there was a fuel scare in the early 70s, something was going on in the Middle East, I can't remember. And the company were told to go slow speed, so we took forty two days to get from Panama to Japan, and that was on a mostly on a rum line. It must have been winter time, right? So you're on the same coast, and there's once you've cleared the coast of California, there's nothing,
1: yeah,
2: absolutely nothing. You cross the Atlantic, you'll see a ship every t- day or two, you know, yeah. but not in the Pacific. It's just empty. It's sh- so huge. Yeah. Coming back home, things were very different. Then. First of all. A lot more, seemed to be a lot more natives about, I suppose, you know, yeah. indigenous folk. I do remember going into the Bellacroix the first night back, I think, on a Saturday or whatever, <laughs> and and there being 11 people in there and everybody bought around, and that would be a whiskey. And you only had, because people went in at nine o'clock and then they closed at 10. Yeah. So people downed whiskey at a rate of knots, it, it was possibly. Dangerous and yeah. present day thinking, um, and I remember sitting at this table, um, little tin tables that they had in the wee bar in the corner, where the passage is now in the yeah. uh with these ten or eleven whiskies dotted round oh and goodness. trying to palm them off to other people. But that was that was the social scene in these days, and of course there was. I'm sure I've told you this before. There was the the, the business of the people that spoke Gaelic, especially, would say so. I guess, Could you it to Could you have <laughs> when did you arrive and when are you going away again? Yeah. And, I get
1: that all the time <laughs> I'm back from a project I'll oh, you <laughs> off next time
2: yeah. <laughs> thanks <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it's people just making conversation Aye, I yeah, yeah. it was quite well after well a few years and I suppose keeping my nose reasonably clean I was able to think about starting this business with so we bought a wee boat in yeah. 1973 the boat was called the Deirdre because that's the, you know, Deirdre of the Soros, you know the story. well, like. yeah, yeah, And Soros was straight enough, it was fairly appropriate. But mm. then we, we came up with Croyd Cruises at one point. <laughs> um, I don't think that lasted very long. It was a bit crazy in a way, but the boat was you know, 22 feet, 22 foot soap dish, you know, a plastic thing. that yeah. uh, Taking people out to Staffa. Wow. First day I went to Staffa from Croyd. I'd never been there in my life before. <laughs>
0: that's
2: that's true. I didn't know that. That's ah, fantastic. Sorry. Oh yes, I I had <laughs> half a dozen people in the boat. And um, did you have to make anything up? <laughs> I, I probably made something up. <laughs> Certainly made some something up as to as far as to why we weren't going to be landing would be concerned. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Gosh, that was a reason. Uh. So that was in seventy three, and and I was still going back to see in the winter time. So yeah, they were cadets; yeah. they were quite good that way, and that they would give me oh, brilliant. time, i uh, And then there was study leave, of course, as well. So oh. I used to work it in with that, and you got paid study leave. And in these days, the increase in the money from being a cadet to being a watchkeeping officer was phenomenal. Yeah. It was like three or four times. Yeah. So when I went as a cadet, first of all. I think it was ten pounds a month plus, ten pounds or twelve fifty a month plus ten pounds a month bonus if you were good. Oh, that's know? brilliant! And if you did, uh, you did a correspondence course as well. Uh, so if you got if you got reasonably good marks in that, that kind of helped right. as well. And then you got study leave, paid study leave as well. Wow! Uh, but from the dizzy heights of that twenty five pounds a month or whatever it was, when you became third mate and i actually got uncertificated third mate before i came ashore um when you were finishing your time by that time you would actually they had actually taught you something about being a navigating officer yeah um like and came like ashore Watches. and uh, to do my second mates that would have been 69 i suppose um, did second mates and then you you were instantly third mate anyway then. Uncertificate you didn't do quite so well, but once you had a certificate, second mate's um uh, the wage I can't remember, hundred and twenty a month, which was what? then yeah, from you know twenty five or whatever, I, if you were lucky. I, yeah. That's that was the but then you you know, you're given responsibility for something that cost even then he sure it, of it be, yeah. millions of pounds. Right. You know, that's uh, brilliant. So in fact that Ness Endeavour was one of the biggest ships in the world when she was built. It was built in built in sixty two. Within the time, the ten years that I was at sea, they were building ships that were five, six, seven times that size. And so
1: let's come back to Mulden and um you you establish a family. Mm. So who who are your family?
2: So, well, that's uh, Pat was uh, uh came as uh something or other, what is it they call it? Um, Travelling art yes. teacher. Yeah, peripatetic. Peripatetic, that's the one. Mm. And uh, she was coming, she came to Mull to be employed going round all the wee schools yeah. and she had a Honda 90 scooter she seemed to fall off quite a lot. And in these days when I was at home on leave we would go to Tubermory and have a pint or five and then race up the old road, various vehicles, to Craig and yeah. on a Saturday night for the dance. Get there about 11 o'clock and the dance had to finish at 12 because you're getting into the Sunday and you weren't allowed to have a oh, license really? after, or a, a dance, after yeah. midnight on Saturday night. So we used to go to them and that's where I met Pat. And 1st of May and she'll tell you. 1970, I think it was, and then we had two children, um, Colin and Cooch, and I was going back to see, I came ashore 73 one winter, I went because, yeah, partly small children, no yeah. uh, and I worked for well, the forerunner of TSL now, uh, oh, James yeah. Knight, yeah. and uh, I had just a general we took bluntly, a general bugger about really driving people here and there. And there was a big crawler, uh, bulldozer thing. And we demolished the old poorhouse at uh, Newdale. Oh, uh, wow. And it was a very wet winter, where the uh, campsite is now. Think, that's right. Yeah. Um, and they took some of the stones down by lorry down to what is underneath the leaded car park now, where the stream comes is that out. Where that uh, went? Some of that, yeah, quite a lot of that went down there. Uh, some of the better sandstone. Archie McDonald managed to get some of the lintels and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. It was good fun in a way. It got certainly got any vandalism that I had in my system out of it because you could pick up these fourteen by fourteen inch floor beams and grab them in this the draught bucket and knock down walls with it. And that was very very satisfying. How
1: intact was the building when you got there?
2: It was just walls really but the floor beams were obviously still in some bits but I think the roof was right off and I think they'd started on it before I before I was actually doing that job Uh, and we did what else did we do we did foundations for houses here and there we did the house at Ardu at the bottom of the hill there Um, I might have told you the story whereby um it was, must have been round about an election. it must have been an election that year and there was a, a gentleman from a certain party that I don't agree with came by in his car with his speakers on the top of it. And oh for goodness pl- plastered labels along the side and he sort of slowed down and looked at us and carried on and must have I d I can't remember whether it's speakers or not, but it was certainly it was obvious what he was Mm-hmm. doing, by the time he came back we were at the stage where we could do the coating on the front of the front wall of that house, which you could see very clearly from the road in these days before all the trees came up, and by the time he was driving back along the road it had S-N-P in <laughs> huge letters right across the front of it so he just took a wee look up and no, no, switched the mute on and <laughs>
1: yeah exactly yeah
2: and um you've got another child as well uh from yourself and pat Rona, Rona came along uh yeah 10 years later she was born in 81 I mean, and she's in Ballarat in Victoria in Australia of course. Uh, with husband and three children
1: Before we finish. Um, I wonder if it's just worthwhile capturing just a moment of. Uh, you talked about the Bell Cry. Uh, through the different periods of your life, when you first went into the Bellacroix, who were the people in the bar sitting around? And not 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 to nowadays, because yeah. we, can, we can go and talk to them now, but, uh-huh. you know, who were the people that were there? What was the, the feeling? What was the, the conversation? What was the language as well? Was it Gaelic or, what, you know?
2: There wouldn't have been all that much Gaelic, I don't think, even then. Uh-huh. Um, the characters you've heard us talking about, you've heard me talking about the bong gun. Yes. Neely McGilvery, Yeah. And he was a, a likable rogue. Yeah, spent sixty days in the barrel for doing something which pertained uh, in fraudulent way to my mother's paychecks. Um, um, was also done for doing things to do with uh, betting because he was ran the mail bus over here as well. So the delay that could be
1: maximized. But, uh,
2: but he was also highly entertaining, and I can remember being up in Kinnegarra one night, it must have been quite small, and him, uh, he was quite a small man anyway, with a very high voice, and him pretending to be Gordon Richards, the jockey who was a very famous jockey at the time, down on his knees with a pair of slippers sticking out from the front as if these were his feet, (laughs) and and doing the running commentary on his (laughs) <laughs> so, so, and somebody said hey, where's your bus said a, a, wee, a wee kind of bus thing a shooting break I think they would be called in these days that you used to do the mails yeah. with and somebody said oh it's in the ditch just down the road Um <laughs> <laughs> that's fine yes. oh, God. <laughs> um, who else would have been there there was Bob do, of course you'll have heard about him and he was his claim to fame was having his name on a war memorial yeah. uh, which uh, Obviously, he was still alive and well, and he used to dine out even in these days on any tourists that come in. He would usually tell that story, and we'd get a half and a half out of that, and yeah. then until he got his half, and then the next one would come along. Uh, he was a short man, but very, very stocky. I remember my father saying his, he reckoned Bob well, Do had the reputation of having carried a plough from Derby over to Dramega on his back Just some, some, yeah. um, Hard man. he was a tough wee character and, um, but I remember us having to pick him up off the street one night when he did a, a few too many and that was a job and a half <laughs> not, not, not an easy man to lift
1: who was the guy that was over at NC the,
2: that was a bit different but uh, oh McQuiston McQuiston, McQuiston. was McQuiston uh, he was reckoned to be probably a half brother of uh De Lechins. Right. And his his surname I think was McKillop. And how he got the name McQuiston, I don't know.
1: I think there was a whole patch of them took names from, that were in the pub and around, that, that took names from European
2: leaders. Uh, I think, uh,
1: not sure if that's when de Gaulle got the nickname as well, is well, that Oh, it right? might have
2: been, but de Gaulle was the only one that I can remember because that. Because I don't know McQuiston it? But, but McQuiston really, never yeah. even, he wasn't even out. I mean, he, in his latter years of latter st- walk getting about years, yeah. Uh, he used to come over on a Sunday, he would get off and he, he was a very good wall builder, he built walls for us, three built walls anyway and then he would go over David and Jean Howarth who had the Bellachroy and yeah. he would move to Arbeg, he would go and do some work for them and then he would be given some money I think in these days it was probably we gave him a tenor and David and Jean gave him a tenor. so he would go to the Bellachroy but this was he would be in his 60s I suppose mm-hmm. then uh, he was a wee it wasn't exactly an oil painting. He was—he mm-hmm. had a squint eye and he had no teeth, and he was quite a funny wee man. But he would go into the billy because he—he he was illiterate, mm-hmm. and so he would just put whatever this stuff was that they'd given him for the day and put it in the counter and just buy around, take it out of that. Because He had no idea if the value of the coins or the yeah. notes, or anything. and then latterly, I think he was in the home and salon, the old oh, Folk right. salon. And apparently, he had an appalling reputation for trying to grab the women by inappropriate parts of them. So it's great not TV man. But anyway, uh, I mean, but he was just—he lived in a, in a wee loft over in NC all his life and just worked on the place for them. I don't think had much of a life to be honest.
1: And. Was it fun to go to the
2: pub in those days? Was
1: it good to be part of that scene? Or I
2: think it? so. Um, I don't know. I guess it was just probably, as I recall it anyway, maybe just a Saturday night or a Friday night. Friday night later on in the 70s, there were two good-sized fishing boats, Alistair McLean had one and Ian Dan had the other one. They'd started off with two. Alistair had the Manx Beauty and Ian had the Fair maid, which I remember doing a week on the fair maid for them at the lobsters down at Torrance when I was about oh sixteen goodness, or seventeen. Wow. That was endless interesting experience. That would be brutal. Um, I don't know. I I just uh, fill, filling up numbers. I think, yeah. um, but we did we did a long day. Uh-huh. I remember, and we anchored up in uh, there's an anchorage in the south side of Erid. There, I can't remember the name of it. Now. We used to anchor in there, and then. They had these two really beautiful boats. Uh, Alistair had the Aquila. Yes. And uh, Ian had the fair maid. And, uh, Aquila and the Frey, sorry. The and uh, they did sprats in the winter time. wintertime, uh, the trawling. So it would have been heaving at the weekends, but I don't know that anything much happened the rest of the time. You know, Just one big night or two big nights out, perhaps.
1: And to round things off... Earlier on, you said you were the only child in Penmore, mm-hmm. in the area. That's now changed quite radically. Yeah, yeah. What was the process that happened there to allow that to happen?
2: Well, I could see... The, when I was a teenager, the population of all was down to 1,600. Now it's nearly... It's getting on for double that, not yeah, quite yet. Aye. And depopulation was continuing, there's no question about yeah. it. And then, of course, there were holiday homes, and then there was rebuilding of one or two like where my father and grandfather lived part of the time which was on the croft richard hannabas's place Bialana was built up these were the two old houses yeah. these were separate crofts in the old days yeah. but still the population wasn't showing especially not for indigenous people then there were some folk <clears throat> come in uh, nick turnbull who you've interviewed and george martin came up they were students they'd fished, after they'd finished working with the Beatles they'd come out yeah they'd come up here um, sailing as teenagers I think in a yeah. wee silhouette a wee 17 foot boat and I think they were both kind of cheesed off for the rat race. I think George did the same as me I think he spent a year in university perhaps and then moved on yeah. um, and Nick had done some I think he was in a catering college for a while or something but he didn't fancy that and they both decided to come up here and fish lobsters as a result of which they bought a few of a ruin as Mrs Bray who was the landlord at the time of Penmore Estate uh, she was selling few off of these old ruins quite cheaply and they rebuilt one and then eventually George built his own house they both had wives my mother's old school uh, Aileen Turnbull came uh-huh. up when she retired Aileen Tosh as she was then and then she met up with Nick and they got married and they had family and George um, got married to Karen and they had family and then they split up and then he got married again and had another family. So it was all these kids um, growing point, up yeah. and at, at that point... Um, That's the 80s, isn't it? So it's late the late 70s, early 80s. 80s. Yeah, 80s, 90s. Yeah. And then it was obvious that one of the things that would help would be to sell... Sites off fairly cheaply for young people to build houses on, otherwise, the place was going to be come desolate again. Uh, yeah. So, uh, we sold off a few sites quite cheap, and as a well, result, now we have uh, what will it be in Penmore eight or ten children going to school, to primary school or secondary every day, yeah. and that helps. Some people call it social engineering, I don't care yeah. uh, if it helps keep the population in the place. Um, certainly, Nick's sons are both highly successful in what they do. Kenny's a good fisherman, and uh, Gordy's running his oyster farm very successfully as well. So that's good. Yeah. Very pleased to see that. Yeah. That's great.
1: Is there anything you think you want to say, anything that you want to, um, in light of kind of other things that have come up in the project
2: at all, anything you want to round off with at all? Um, things have changed a lot, as you know, after over over these 60-something years that I can recall, sort of thing. Um, I think that uh, over the years, you can see things going down and coming up again, going down, yeah. you're talking about the Belichry Hotel, for example. Yeah. Some of the owners we've had there have been appalling and Police totally, yeah. completely out of understanding with the local community. Yeah. Uh, we've seen people come in who... Uh, sometimes we call them the ones that want to pull up the drawbridge. Uh, uh, everything must stay exactly the same. Yeah. Um, and I don't approve of that. I want to see progress without yeah. it being excessive to the point of covering the island in concrete, you know. Yeah. So the, these are important things. But the thing is, the social side of things, particularly the music, which I was always involved in. Yeah. Um, like I said I sang at mods. I got the silver medal in Inverness when I was 10, and then <laughs> went on and did the Gaelic folk group thing and we won that in yeah. Portree and with a, a bunch of friends in 82 or something uh, and I was always involved in that side of it, the uh, sessions particularly and I, I love all the traditional music, I always have done now I do feel sometimes it's become overproduced it's over professional. there are kids of 17, 18 years old that can play your socks off you know they're just incredible musicians and it's great to hear but the old notion of being able to sit down with a few folk and kind of knock a tune out here and there mm. and the fun that people used to have with that we used to play loads of sessions here yeah. including the yeah. We used to go to Craig and Ewer, Craig and, Ewer and play there sometimes uh, we used to have with friends come in on a charter an old timer sailing boat the Long Leader and they used to bring uh, quite often, a couple of Norman and Anne, you know, I used to yeah. come in with that, and we would have a wee session out, out the the snug in the McDonald Arms, and oh, eventually yeah. the place would be packed out. Great fun. Yeah. Um, I kind of miss that. Uh, yeah. I think that should. Well, we're trying be, be, yeah, yeah, we should try to revive that more. But and certainly the Bellacroix we've got new owners there who are absolutely brilliant and would be it's all a up real for high that. Point yeah, that's made life, such yeah. a difference. To be honest, it was in these days. It was more of a drinking den, you know, fifty yeah. years ago. But it is still a social center, a very important one,
1: and a very welcoming come. one, which hasn't. And been for now, a long time, and it's down to them.
2: Yeah, Tom and Hannah. Tom so Hannah. if you've got the right people in in the place like that, it makes such a huge difference to everything yeah. and how people meet and how they get on and yeah. you know. That's worth
1: celebrating definitely. Yeah, yeah. No two ways about it.
2: Um, that's it. I mean, it's still a great place to live. It's a great place to bring up kids. Um, best quality of life you can have. You know, I love it when I see the when they do go out and climb about the trees and fall off them and go and yeah, yeah. come back in covered in mud or straight out of the river soaking wet. Far better than them sitting in front of a, a wee screen. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's still, still good. There's yeah. plenty more we can
1: talk about, and I'm um, hopefully trying to get you together with a few other folk at some point, and we'll talk more about uh, the nature of uh, the industries that you've worked in in relation to the sea and things like. That. I think that'd be very, very interesting to see can get a few more folk uh, together mm-hmm. and chat about that because there's plenty of tales like the the and the Khurul Inch oh, as well. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, the, yeah. We didn't get around to that. The, yeah, not, well, you know. that's oh. that's for the next. Okay. <laughs> <time. laughs> yeah, Fair enough. Um, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate that, it's brilliant. It's right, weather. My friendship with Ian, Pat, Colin and the Morrison family in many ways provided one of the main inspirations in starting this podcast. Their interests and their wealth of knowledge that they're so happy to share at any point is deeply inspirational. So there we go. That was one of our longest episodes so far but I felt that there was so much in it that was all worth saving. My apologies for the recent hiatus. I've just been a bit knackered. I'd been all over the country with work and I just needed a bit of time at home not doing too much uh, other than making the most of my time with my family and various beasts. Now, you'll notice that we frequently recommend books and films related to the islands on this podcast. My usual solution to spreading info on these is to give you a link to Amazon for you to check out. A couple of months ago, one of the listeners, Rachel, was in contact to tell me about Hive.co.uk who offer a competitive alternative to shopping with Amazon. Amazon, whose morals are undoubtedly suspect. I mean, what's wrong with paying corporation tax? It's only the polite thing to do. So if you're after online book sales, do check out hive.co.uk. I'd also recommend any of the amazing bookshops we have in Argyll. From Salon Spar's Cracking Selection to Tacklin' Books in Tobermory, where you'll more than likely be served by the wonderful Sue Penny, or even one of my heroes, Jean Whittaker, to the Argyll Book Centre in Loch Giltpid, whose local interest section is second to none, to the Celtic House in Beaumore, Isla, where you can get a fine coffee as you peruse your purchase, Watterson's in Oban, with its wonderful staff, to the old bookshelf in Campbellton where you can get lost for ages in the wonder of the second-hand books. Their selection of Scottish history books, just makes my mouth water. And then there's my personal favourite, Book Point and Dunoon. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm looking to fundraise through donations. So if you feel like it and you're able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee through the website. You'll see a donate tab there, where you can donate if you so wished. I've also got a Patreon page for donations, which you can find under my name, Alistair Satchel. If you wanted to contribute to that, you're very welcome. And thank you to so much of you that have contributed. I really greatly appreciate it. But don't worry if you can't donate or you don't want to. I'd much rather you listen than not. And if you wanted to sponsor any of the episodes to come as a business, please feel free to drop me a line. Also, to help me grow the podcast, if you wanted to leave a rating or a review on whichever platform you use to listen, I'd be most grateful. And thank you also to those of you who reach out to say hello. It's always wonderful to hear from you. Thank you. As ever, the webpage, winter.com has all the links and info you'll need from this episode. And we can be found on social media, on Twitter, Fachebook, and Instagram. Kuyu, thank you for listening, wherever you may be. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. More in time, This episode is dedicated to the memory of Christine McPhail.